Welcome to Write Medicine, a podcast that explores the minds, motivations and practices of people who create content that connects with and educates healthcare professionals. I'm your host, Alex Housen, a former nurse, a medical sociologist and an education writer and researcher in healthcare. Join me to learn from education professionals about resources and tools of the trade and listen to stories about what drives them in the medical education field. If your work involves planning, designing, or delivering education to healthcare professionals, this podcast is for you. My conversation today on the Right Medicine podcast is with Dr. Andrew Chaco, a psychiatrist and leader in healthcare innovation. Andrew uses his medical experience to teach others how to become design thinkers using cognitive, strategic and practical processes by which design concepts are developed. He's passionate about transforming healthcare into the vital, rewarding and life-changing practice that it can be for patients, providers and support professionals alike. Let's dive in. I know that you've been doing uh, a lot of work recently, so it was really timely because I've been thinking a lot about where we are in healthcare education and mm-hmm. who's in that space and who's doing kind of interesting and creative and innovative things. So uh, I'm really happy to have the opportunity to talk to you about the work that you're doing. And we first met yes. at the Alliance Industry Summit in Park City, I think in 2017. Good memory, yeah. And I think you gave a presentation there and I was just really struck by how different your perspective was and energetic. And I wondered how you found the alliance in the first place, because your work seems to be much broader than Mm -hmm. the particular focus of the alliance for continuing education in the health professions. So how did you find the Alliance Conference? So I was doing some design teaching for the APA and Nina Taylor, who was the one that structured, who created a time spot for me to do it, uh, got really excited about what I was doing. So I did a three-hour workshop and it got really great reviews. And so she said, you know, I'm doing this presentation for the Alliance. Do you want to help me do it? I said, sure. And so that was the first I'd heard about it. You know, it was interesting for me one of my big points on reforming healthcare is it takes a whole team and we often don't see the whole team or we don't even credit the whole team. And my experience in healthcare is it's, it's been very much, there's two people in medicine, right? There's the doctor and then there's everyone else. And I think that that is, that's a disservice both to the physician as well as to all the other people that it takes to make it work. So it's really interesting for me when I come up on my own sort of uh, blind spots and not even realizing there's this whole like team of professionals that think about medical education and are actively sort of engaged in how to produce it and create it. So I thought that was really, that was eye-opening for me and it was a really interesting experience. There's obviously a bit of synergy there between what goes on in the Alliance field and, and the work that you're doing. So you mentioned mm-hmm. design thinking. I know that you're in the space of healthcare revolution. Can you talk a little bit then about what design thinking is in the first instance? Yeah, so it's a really interesting buzzword. And I 
as much as I don't like buzzwords, sometimes it sums things up. So I think the process of design, it's basically the applying the process of design to, you know, whatever problem you're facing. And the process of design is really like, how do you take whatever issue, whatever problem, whatever opportunity you're looking at, and then I like to break it down into three steps. One is really get to know that issue problem from as many perspectives as possible. So you get as total of an understanding as possible of it. Then apply, you know, like a creative mindset to coming up with as many solutions as possible. And when I lead workshops around it, I really encourage people to get as radical and as crazy and defy the laws of physics type thing in their proposed solutions. And then from there, how do you take what's interesting about those solutions and then prototype them and then test them out and see what can be applied and then look at what works and what doesn't work in this kind of prototyping testing cycle to refine it and to come up with something. And it's kind of jumping around between those three points. You know, in the middle of the prototyping, you might come upon, I call it the the rabbit hole of design. You might just start going Mm -hmm. down paths that you don't even really understand. And then you might need to go back to the drawing board to go and get more information about like, whoa, okay, we're in this space. Now, what does that mean? Then start like, again, expanding your thought process about possible solutions. So you can kind of bounce around. So that's the design thinking process. And applying it in the healthcare space is, you know, what I've decided to take it. So there's a couple of things there that I want to explore. One is why you decided to bring design thinking into healthcare. Uh, But before we get to that, can you kind of give us some examples of the kinds of problems in healthcare that you think design thinking is uniquely equipped to address? So that's interesting that you asked that because people ask me, where can I apply design thinking? said, you know, you can apply it to just about anything. You know, you want to design your best birthday party, you can design, think your way through it. I think ultimately designing is just, it's it's a very human thing to do. It's like, really, how do I come up with the best solution? And oftentimes, you know, some things happen to us unwittingly or, you know, there's a creative accident or a mistake you know, a classic one is mold growing over the petri dish, and all of a sudden we have penicillin. Uh, well, how do you how do you kind of make those mistakes or you know happy accidents happen more frequently? So it's just the process of doing that. So really, you can apply it to any situation. I think you know when you're at that kind of problem solving. You know when I'm teaching clinicians, or I tell them that one of the things that makes me an exceptional psychiatrist. And I say exceptional to kind of get them <laughs> like, okay, how am I going to react to this? Is he really the Psychiatrists are not going to take that line down, right? <laughs> no, 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 they're not. But it's funny. They, they actually are receptive to it. And I said, you know, I treat my patients like a design problem. So it's really important to get to know them, get to understand like all the things that are going on in their life before I design a solution. So even on a clinical level, so for example, if you were to come in with your twin sister, so biologically exactly the same with the exact same presentation, you know, what worked for her might lead me to some ideas about what might work for you. What I realize is that, you know, she might be a Fortune 500 CEO 
or an airline pilot or a single mother of two. And with those different life circumstances, you know, there's nuances of what works for you that might not work for her and vice versa. And so how do I tailor something to you? And what's important to her might not be important to you. And so really understanding you and the life that you want to create, then I design a treatment plan to help you get to that life. So if that's one thing for you and one thing for her, it's important to understand the nuances. So on that level, on a very clinical level, design thinking is important. And then certainly all the way through the whole process as far as putting systems together, putting things in place, even how we arrange the workflow in the OR and the ER, or even in you know my waiting room. Like there's so many points at which we can just rethink the solution and not kind of rest on our tried and true laurels type thing. So, you know, we're talking at the end of May 2020 when, Mm -hmm. you know, we're in this situation where we're all being affected by coronavirus in one way or another. Mm -hmm. And a lot of systems are being disrupted right now because of COVID-19. Yeah. Have you had conversations with people about how design thinking might be applied to addressing some of the issues that people are experiencing with the disruption to healthcare systems. So, you know, healthcare systems, hospital systems are asking salary cuts of their staff. Uh, They're furloughing people. They're shutting down whole service lines. How could design thinking be kind of brought in to address some of those issues? So, One of the things that I think um, plagues medicine to begin with is um, we become, you know, people in medicine become very commoditized, right? This is, um, so there's a word I don't hear very often, sociology 101. (laughs) Uh, So I'm a psychiatrist and I'm a general psychiatrist. And in, as far as healthcare is concerned, that, uh, that's what I am and that's what I'm good at and that's how I can be utilized, right? So, and if I step out, they can take any other general psychiatrist and put me in my place and that should be equally effective. But we all actually know that that's not the truth, that I have strong suits and there's things that I'm exceptional at and there are things that I'm much less good at and that you would be, you, would, you as a patient would be much better served by somebody else. And it has nothing necessarily to do with just my credentialing. So um, the way we've applied it is, you know, this is how we we have this plug and play model of, okay, where can we apply your set of credentials into this thing? And Mm -hmm. coming up with much more team-based approach where there's an understanding of like, okay, what are the other skill sets you bring to this table? How else can you be involved in allowing people to be part of the solution? You know, it's hard to have a legislated overall solution. I think what is much better is when we can develop local solutions to like local problems. So having that flexibility to not think like, oh, okay, you're just this Lego brick that I need to put in this place. But how can you as a, you know, part of this team help devise a solution or even, you know, find usefulness or, or helpfulness in another capacity not usefulness but like how can you be a part of the solution in another capacity 
So bringing that to our kind of hypothetical situation, you know, how might that work in practice? So, you know, interestingly, one of the big areas that I've seen personally is, and this takes it out of the hypothetical, I have a few patients who are healthcare providers on the front lines. On the COVID-19 front Mm -hmm. lines. And one of the things that I'm noticing is, and I've noticed this before, this has been kind of part of the whole premise behind restructuring medicine, is that especially in these crises, they don't feel supported by the system, right? It doesn't feel like the system's looking out for their interests. So really applying, you know, a creative mindset to seeing like, okay, how do we provide the services we need to provide? while really kind of looking after the people that are providing them and then being receptive to their thoughts and their ideas and even their concerns about like, this is um, the whole mask situation, certainly. And the PPE, you know, is one of the big concerns that people have had or healthcare providers have had. Sure. And how yeah. do you, how do you create a place where, you know, they're not only physically safe but they're emotionally safe like they feel protected and they feel cared for which is really important when you're going into kind of harm's way to and take care of all these other people to know that that someone's got your back you just uh, i liken it to you know if you're gonna go work out gonna go lift it's nice to know that you have someone spotting you to it makes it more comfortable to try harder or, or do more i do want to push that a little bit further you use the word commoditize Commoditized. So that, that tells me you've probably read your marks, in which case, you know, one of the things that Karl Marx tells us is that the system's never going to look out for you if you're the worker. So how does design thinking get systems and those in presumably leadership positions within systems to start thinking about the importance of supporting those who support the system? Yeah, so... It's a kind of a one-two punch for me. So I'm going to go back to a previous question that you said you wanted to defer is how I kind of decided to bring design thinking to healthcare. So Thanks for uh, circling back to that. Yeah, no problem. Uh, because it does help kind of lend some ideas to why, you know, to this is, is how they can do it. So I started my career as an um, officer in the Navy. And my focus really was on leadership and teamwork. And how do I take whatever raw parenchyma the Navy gives me and create an exceptional team out of them? And I learned a lot of great lessons on the way and was, you know, met with a good deal of success in doing that. Then went from there into this design field. I'd been an engineer my whole professional life and was an artist my whole entire life. And so when Stanford had this joint program, mechanical engineering and art, I thought, that sounds perfect. I don't even know what it is. And then all of a sudden I was in this field of design. And I was like, okay, a lot of learning about what design was. And as I was designing, uh, doing design work, uh, you know, not to knock it, but I thought I cannot design potato chip bags and Swiffers for the rest of my life. That would just not... That would be mind-numbing. So what field it looks like it needs good design or redesign? And I literally, I saw doctors carrying pagers. And I thought, that is ridiculous. This is the 21st century. Who carries pagers? And uh, apparently doctors do. 
And so I set out like, well, maybe this is, this is the field that needs some help. As I started doing some work in, in this space or looking into the space, realized that this disconnect between clinicians and the engineers and designers who were coming up with the solutions, that was a big stumbling block. And I thought, well, maybe the solution is to go to medical school. You know, I'm a pretty good student. How hard could it be? Hubris, classic, <laughs> a little much. But nonetheless, I thought, okay, I'm going to go to medical school and then I'll go straight into design right afterwards. So that's how I came into Madison really was this idea of how do you bring design into this space? And as I started getting further and further into it, realized that my initial plan, which was to go to medical school and then go back into design, was there was some flaw to it. I just didn't have enough clinical understanding. So although I had some amazing opportunities, including going to Media Lab at MIT and, and helping redesign the future of healthcare, I thought, well, you know, at this point, I'm just a glorified medical student, really need understanding of medicine. And so that led me to residency. And then after that, started working on like how to implement design in this space. So that kind of comes to the next question about leaders and how they can start, you know, supporting people better and whatnot and not commoditize the people working for them. I think the idea is really about changing. And this is where the revolution comes in the really changing the structure of medicine and to understand what leadership's real role is in this space. And it really is to uh, equip and support the frontline staff as best as possible. You know, it's one thing if you're working for Xerox and like everybody is coming in, but you're making the same copy machines and the same whatever else. And it's kind of very structured, but in medicine, it does not work that way. Like each patient encounter is entirely different and requires a little you know, uh, something slightly nuanced and different. And there are, yes, there are some consistent things that we're going to want here. We don't want the lights to be turned on and, you know, furniture in the offices. But other than that, like, how do you create an environment where that frontline team can be as flexible and mobile to respond as best they can to, you know, the person in front of them or the people in front of them? And therefore, leadership's role is really, this is where that whole service leadership or servant leadership comes in where my job is to like equip the people working for me uh, so they can do their job the best. I imagine that people listen to this podcast in the continuing medical education, continuing professional development field will certainly agree with a lot of the things that you're saying about equipping the people who and supporting the people who are on the front line of healthcare work in general, and particularly during this kind of COVID era, I imagine that we're going to be seeing a lot of change in how leadership kind of executes that support. But I want to ask, where do you see the synergy between something like design thinking and some of the other interventions and initiatives that have been ongoing within healthcare probably for a few decades now and in relation to quality improvement and Mm. education the kind of meat of what people in the continuing medical education continuing professional development field deliver Mm. where do you see the synergies in terms of the design thinking approach and the design of educational strategies that support clinicians in the work that they do. Yeah. So 
You're right. That's a great question. And it's a big question. So I think I mentioned before, like design thinking is just a process for how we think about problems or how we go about bringing creativity into problem solving. If you think about it from you know, a graphical perspective, if I'm at point A and I'm always traveling in this direction, I will always reach point B or constantly kind of go along that trajectory. And so I'll be somewhere along that line. But if we want to come up with something novel and new, we have to find a way to get off that path. And so like the example I used before is like, oh, inadvertently mold is going to grow on the Petri dish, which takes us off the path that we expected to go down. And so get up in a different place and discover something different. So how then do we find ways to purposely derail ourselves from the way we constantly approach or think about problems? And uh, there are things we can do There are ways we can look at it to shift our perspective, to uh, understand things from, you know, a new. And that's, for me, when I think of design thinking or just design in general, that's what, how I try to codify it. That's what I think the whole purpose behind it is. So one of the operative things behind it, though, is starting with a look at, like, what the problem really is, right? So... I'll tell you a quick story, and I think it uh, exemplifies it really well. So in 2007, Stanford had this, has had this offering called Design for Sustainability, or basically design for like these extreme conditions. And in what was kind of the newly minted D school, which is the design school, so to speak, where people that are non-designers can come and take these intro courses into the design process. Mm-hmm. Uh, so people from like all over the school, different walks of life. And these five uh, graduate students got together in this class and they were presented with the idea of, okay, premature infant mortality is an issue. Uh, how do we go about solving that? So every year there are 20 million infants that are born around the world uh, prematurely. And of that, 1 million will die by most estimates within the first 24 hours over the first four weeks. And that's a staggering number. And most of these are in, you know, third world countries or places where there isn't that quite that same access to healthcare. So they were presented with the problem. And as they were looking at it, they thought, well, incubators are our solution. This is how we handle things in the first world, so to speak. And... How do we go about, like, oh, bringing that solution to these countries that are, you know, may not be able to afford it because incubators are $20,000 a pop. And that's, that's an expensive price tag. So they went about starting to make a cheaper incubator. And as they're doing that, it happened that one of the team members, a guy by the name of Linus, ends up flying to Nepal. And as he's in Nepal, he's looking around the hospital and he notices that there's all these unused incubators. He says, you, that doesn't make sense. You have a problem with like premature infant mortality. And here you have all these incubators sitting around and they're not being used. Uh, what's the deal? And the doctor looks at him and says, you know, well, the babies are not dying in the hospital. They're dying in the villages. And so he's like, oh, wait, that gives him a moment to pause. Like there's something wrong with some of our assumptions. So they go back to the drawing board. They wrestle with it for a bit because they're like, you know, this is a 10 week Stanford class. We're off to our, we've got our pipelines down to like seven figure jobs. 
uh, you know, in, in a few months, like, do we really want to go down this, what I like to call the rabbit hole of design? Like, and so they thought they'd stumble onto something that was really important. And so they kept going. Uh, and they realized like, oh, let's take this problem apart. Uh, incubators are designed for clinicians and they require electricity and all these other things. What's going on in the rural village? Well, there aren't clinicians and there aren't, isn't even reliable electricity. So who's our new user? And what's the real problem, which is actually the really essential question to ask. What's the real problem we're facing? And so they had assumed that the problem was incubators were too expensive. But when they could zoom out and look at the problem properly, they could understand that, oh, the problem isn't that incubators are too expensive. The problem is really that babies are not staying warm. That's the real problem. And when you reframe it that way, you can bring in a host of different solutions that might not have been in your thought process before. And I, uh, you know, as I was thinking about this problem, we could zoom out even farther and say the real problem is babies aren't staying in utero to term. Long enough, yeah. Right. Like ideally, we would find a way to keep them in that environment, you know, past when uh, they're coming out and they're coming out for whatever reason. But Without getting into the medicine of it, the problem that they could tackle was the babies aren't staying warm. So they had to figure out who the user was. Well, the user is, um, we'll make it the new mother, right? Who doesn't have access to a clinician and doesn't have access to reliable electricity and often mistrusts Western medicine. Mm -hmm. So uh, if they were told, oh, give the baby two spoons of this, they'll be like, you know, you don't know my baby. Maybe one spoon is sufficient, right? Keep your baby at 37 degrees. Mm, that's a little hot, maybe 30 degrees is better, right? So there's a lot of like second guessing and not necessarily from a totally informed standpoint, but just like from a cultural bias. And so given that who this, this is who the user is, how do we build a product for them? So they really quite amazingly invented this. Basically, it's a sleeping bag and it's made of this super high-tech material that retains heat. And in the back, there's a pocket and in that pocket, they can put a paraffin wax sleeve. Now, this paraffin wax sleeve has amazing chemical properties, but most importantly, it goes through phase change mm-hmm. at the right temperature. So if you take this sleeve and throw it in a pot of boiling water, again, so you don't need electricity, it will absorb all the energy heat. it needs yeah. to stay at that temperature. It's like you know a cup of water with ice in it. Uh, it will go from being almost solid ice to almost no ice and stay at the same temperature the whole time, meanwhile absorbing all the heat around it. So it's going through that phase change. Same thing with this thing. It can stay at the right temperature for up to five hours while keeping the baby at that temperature. So, And all you have to do after that is take that sleeve out and insert another one, which you can do with, uh, you know, again, another pot of boiling water, which they certainly have access to. And if we look at it objectively, like, it was a much more viable solution for the target population. But again, zooming out, look at our first world solution. Okay, we're going to put the baby in a plastic box under a heat lamp. Yeah, that's not really going to fly. Yeah, where would a baby want to be in, ideally, like ideally in utero, but like connected to the mother in some regard. The next best thing. So I I love that story for a couple of reasons. One is, you know, you talked about assumptions and checking your assumptions in both design and education. You know, practitioners do often make assumptions about what needs to change, what the problem is, what learners need to know. But the other 
reason I love the story is the learners that you're talking about at design school eventually get to the point where they need to figure out what the actual problem is. And I think this is one of the areas that takes us into you know, adult learning and continuing education in healthcare, because as you know, education practitioners, you know, we're all about trying to figure out what the root problem is so mm-hmm. that we can design effective education that helps clinicians, whether we're talking about physicians, nurses, pharmacists, to learn what they need to learn in order to address the problem. So I wonder... So how to apply it to... Yeah. So, so I'm going to flip it on its head. And I love that question. I love where you're going, at least where I anticipate you're going. And just in the interest of time, I'm just going to jump into it. So I start with this when I'm building any learning or even when I'm working with my patients, because again, fundamentally, what I know in both cases, what I'm doing is I'm trying to reshape your neurons. That's it. So then I figure out why do you even have those neurons? Why do we even have a brain, right? Three pounds between your ears eats up 20 to 25% of your caloric intake, which is grossly disproportionate to its weight. And it's a 20 watt processor by some estimates. So it's really kind of very super efficient, but pretty resource intensive. And there's a great talk I love by a neuroscientist named Daniel Wolpert. And he says, you know, why you have a brain is you have a brain because you move, right? Non-living things, no brain, living things that don't move, don't have a brain. Once a creature begins to move with any purpose, it develops a nervous system to control that movement. So everything your brain does is centered around movement. And so the learning, the emotions, uh, like even literally any movement you generate, unless it's a reflex, it comes from your brain on some level and certainly from your nervous system. And so if we're thinking about learning, we have to know that like, okay, it has to serve like on some level movement. If we want it to be effective, it has to play the things that make learning effective. And when I started going down this path, I was watching a video. And I don't know if I showed you this video. It's like one of those typical jaywalking or whatnot. It was at this university and they start interviewing people about like things they should have known. Uh, the different university students and said, you know, when was the Civil War? Who fought in the Civil War? Uh, who won the Civil War? And nobody knew. But well, yeah, I was just going to say, I bet you got some interesting... Oh, it was just crazy, some of their responses. But then they asked him, who was Brad Pitt married to? Who was his first wife? Who was his second wife? What show was Snooki on? And everybody nailed those questions. And at first, you know, after I got past being morally outraged and incensed that they didn't know, like, like the Civil War, which arguably would affect their lives much more than Brad Pitt's choice of spouses, I realized something... More importantly, they didn't have to memorize this stuff. They didn't have to memorize who Brad Pitt was married to. It just stuck. It stuck for a reason. There was some emotional valence to it. There was some sort of, on some way, their brain thought, this is relevant to my life, whereas the stuff about the Civil War isn't relevant to their life. There was no effort put in. It was effortless. And so how do we make learning effortless? Like understanding what the brain is there for and why it learns and why it absorbs certain material. Like, Let's not kind of browbeat people into shame and not and make them learn because they're supposed to and they're supposed to be good clinicians and they're supposed to learn. Like, how are they learning anyway? Like, what are we naturally absorbing? Like, we learn when we move. We learn when we're fun. We having fun. We learn. We also learn when we're sad. But let's not go there. And when we're actually emotionally engaged and and we think that the experience is vital. So, restructuring learning from a standpoint of 
understanding the mechanism for learning and why we learn, and then we can sort of subvert it to our ends. Like, I remember memorizing lists and lists of drugs over and over and over again. And then when I have to get ready for the boards, I'm going to have to memorize it again. Why? Because it just doesn't stick. But I know who Brad Pitt is married to. I know who he was married to beforehand. I'll never have to memorize that. If it showed up on the test, I would be excited because that would be an easy point. So how do we make this other stuff that we think is important to learn like that stuff? That's the argument I would say. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there are a lot of us, you know, in this field who would absolutely agree with the notion that emotional connection is essential to anchoring any sort of learning. So mm-hmm. let me ask you before we kind of close out our conversation, totally. then, what are some of the things that you do in the work that you do as you engage with people who are trying to create some kind of healthcare transformation? What are some of the things that you see in content either visual or written content, because we still need tangible materials to support Mm -hmm. learning. What are some of the things that you see that help to create the kind of emotional connection that really supports learning? Hmm. I think um, one of the things that I think is really helpful is going to the experiential part is simulation-based learning, right? Like, I think one of the reasons that the Socratic method, when it's really done the Socratic way, as opposed to the shame-filled way that we do it in medical education, you know. I think there's still a lot of that shame-based approach in uh, undergraduate training or in the continuing education world. Certainly in undergraduate medical education and then GME. And then, but if then that becomes a culture, it's hard for that, that culture and that mindset not to permeate throughout CME. Right. Like if I've been taught yeah. that it's yes, you I better not say the wrong answer because the whole audience is going to think I'm a bleeding idiot. Right. And then that reflects on my ability to be a good provider and like, uh, oh, my God, I failed my boards or like I did this and I did that and instead of looking at it as like, oh, what can we all learn from this? Totally. Like even um, the morbidity and mortality conferences, which are really you know, in their essence, supposed to be opportunities for learning mm-hmm. are really just kind of... They're shame fests. Oh, God. <laughs> it's, like, it's, a, it's like a public stoning. Yeah. I, I think it's great that CME is looking at it. Fortunately or unfortunately, I have to go even deeper into the roots of where this kind of culture sets up because even when the CME is set up to the point where, oh, it's like engaging and wonderful. Like I know when I, when I do workshops, I really have to work. One of the biggest things I do is try to create an environment that feels safe for people to be able to, to step outside of their comfort zone and volunteer answers that they might think are ridiculous or they're self-editing. And I do that by, by volunteering the most ridiculous ideas. I try to demonstrate the bars up here and say the most outlandish things, which gives, gives them permission to go here at least. Like I just uh, he said level. this yeah. and he's acting like that much of an idiot. Then, okay, we can go here. So yeah, anything that then can get them to uh, engage in their own way and also understand that people absorb things differently. So this is just purposely how I think about it. And I've seen some people do it, but really how is the learning reinforced both visually, experientially, and like, you know, from what they're hearing and what they're, you know, getting kinesthetically uh, by writing it down and and doing whatever. I love the connection that you're setting up there between, um, and I know it's controversial for people to talk about different learner styles, but 
and that's not really where I'm going with this, but I do love the connection between kinesthetic, you know, kinesthetic between movement, writing, because I also know you're a Zumba instructor. And I'm a yoga instructor. That's awesome. And I think, you know, one of the things that that comes out for a lot of people is, you know, in the context of that movement is exactly what you were talking about in terms of something opens up to allow learning and to make that process clearer and more engaging and deeper. So just to kind of wrap up, where can people find you and your transformative workshops? Oh, great. Thank you for asking. So there's my website. It's probably the easiest place to start. It's chacomd.com, C-H-A-C-K-O-M-D.com. And then I have a few of my videos out on YouTube. I'm actually working on some sort of offering around really how we're going to transform healthcare or create the healthcare moving forward. And a large part of that is around the education piece, how we educate clinicians and how that in turn shapes the culture of medicine and also shapes the kind of quality of care that we can provide and what patients end up experiencing. So understand that, you know, to quote Reagan, trickle down economics, so to speak. Of, trickle down economics. Yeah, yeah. Like how we train the practitioners will, you know, ripple down to how like they provide care and the environments they create. I love it. Can people find you on social media? They can. I'm not as active as I'd like to be, but I'm holding out hope. I'm on Twitter occasionally, uh, Instagram, maybe a little bit more frequently, and then on Facebook. And I do publish stuff on Medium. So oh, I okay, can great. Send you the... Yeah, it seems to be really growing as a medium yeah. for getting written content out there. Yeah. So, Andrew, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks yeah, for so sharing awesome, some of your insights on design thinking, healthcare transformation, and the role of continuing education in that process. And we yeah. wish you well. Thank you so much. I have a lot of takeaways from my conversation with Andrew. When we talk about design thinking, we're really talking about applying a creative mindset to generate solutions to problems. It's worth remembering that the genesis of design thinking is in product design, where there's tangible output. But healthcare is service-oriented. How then does design thinking inform clinical education in service of a service-oriented practice? What I heard is that educators need to really define and describe clinical practice or performance problems with exquisite detail and think really broadly about what the problem is. That's the creativity part. And then a design thinking approach creates prototypes and tests them out in an iterative process. That's the innovation part of design thinking. I was surprised to learn that design thinking is already being applied in some medical education contexts, for instance, in relation to curricular form at Harvard Medical School. And if you're interested in learning more about this and other applications of design thinking, there are some links in the show notes that might be helpful. As I said, I was surprised to learn how extensive design thinking already is in undergraduate medical education. 
Andrew Chaco suggests that perhaps it's time to embrace design thinking in continuing education and professional development too, and be part of the move toward preparing health professionals to solve complex problems in that most complex of environments, healthcare. I'm your host, Alex Housen. Thanks for listening to Right Medicine.